Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we're joined from New York, New York by Ryan Broderick, the journalist behind the Garbage Day newsletter. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Well, don't get too excited because I, I only really have one question, which I'm just going to repeat in a variety of contexts. Do you think that Elon Musk knows what he's doing, specifically in the first instance when he spent $44 billion on Twitter? Yes, this is this is the question, isn't it? And I have, well, maybe fortunately for us, because you know, we, we, need a, we need a show to fill, right? I... I go back and forth on it. Part of me thinks like, okay, maybe he thinks he knows what he's doing. And then the other part of me is like, no, he has no idea what he's doing. It's just total silliness. Another part of me wonders if this is a conspiracy to destroy Twitter. <laughs> because, I mean, if he thinks this is a good idea, that actually has more, like that creates more questions. But I think as of right now, we're recording this, uh, it's it's Friday, my time still. I'm going to say he does not know what he's doing. That's how I feel right this second, but that could change at any minute. When Elon Musk fired everyone, do you think he knew what he was doing there? And do you think it's a problem <laughs> that there aren't any furries left at Twitter? Yeah. So uh, I assume that you're referencing the tweet, which is, uh, to paraphrase, which is all of uh, information technology is basically on the backs of like three furries um, that they yes. pretty much run the internet. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I don't know who works at the company anymore. I don't know. <laughs> it's so weird to talk about. I don't know how – also, the janitors have, have gone on strike and then been fired for going on strike. So it must – oh, and they're sleeping in there. So, I mean, it's it's essentially like if this was a cult compound, we're like a, a couple days away from the FBI raid. Like it's got to smell insane in there. It's just like a, a bunch of really unfortunate workers who didn't have the ability to leave stuck – laughing at i guess like reddit memes with him all day like i think that's what they're doing i don't god i don't know <laughs> i just i have so many questions ryan do you think elon musk knows who andrew anglin is he must right uh so you're referencing uh the editor of the daily stormer one of the most infamous neo-nazi publications of the 21st century he was banned from twitter for a while and he and fifty-nine thousand other Formerly banned accounts have returned to the website. The majority of them appear to be QAnon people from uh, anecdotal uh, research I've done, which would also explain why all of a sudden, like the Beatles are being canceled for being Satanists this week. I don't know if you saw that. So yeah, the site is just like going off the deep end because all of the things that made it somewhat bearable over the last five to seven years have been undone in a matter of weeks. I feel like they're only bringing back uh, the big accounts because I had heaps of QAnon followers, but they must have all been lobbies. 
because uh, my follower account didn't go back up. Well, be honest. I was actually really nervous about this because, like, yeah, I have tussled with the QAnon people a few times, and they have a fairly good cultural memory. And so I was really expecting, you know, a whole bunch of annoying replies or mentions. But also my my engagement from both good people and bad people has cratered in the last week and a half to two weeks. And I wonder if it's just like my section of Twitter is not spending a lot of time on the site anymore. Or I've been shadow banned. Who knows? I have no idea anymore. I thought Twitter was more popular than ever, according to Mr. Musk. I have heard that. I, I, I And yet I have seen no evidence of that being the case. I... In in fact, actually today I, I was I was reading his tweets of how popular Twitter was, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna try to remember like how fast my tweet deck used to move. So I, I use like an app called Tweet Deck, which shows you tweets in real time on like a dashboard. And I just stared at my tweet deck for like a half hour today, trying to like count how many tweets per minute I was seeing. And I follow close to three thousand people, and then I have at least another two thousand people on various lists that all appear in columns on my tweet deck. I'm like a pretty big power user at this point, and my tweet deck does not move move nearly at the speed that it used to. And I'm following people from around the world because I have like different columns for different languages and different like media ecosystems and different subcultures. And the whole thing is just moving a lot slower than it used to even a month ago. I think so. What you're telling me is that you have secret lists of people that you're following. Should we be concerned about this? Uh, My most recent list that I created was, uh, so they're all private because I I don't want people to get the notification that says that I'm following them. And I started doing this when I was like very early on following like the growing fascist movement on Twitter. So every time I'd find like a new right wing asshole, I would just put them on the list. Uh, But then I started creating more specialized ones for different areas of the world that I was reporting in. So I have one for India. I have one for Brazil. I have one just for tech journalists. But most recently – oh, and then I I did one for crypto. But most recently, I created one that I call the Vibe Shift, which is just for the like crypto fascists and occultist podcasters in downtown Manhattan Uh, because I was kind of interested like how those people were networking together. So I I, I would like to think that I have a fairly good handle on the global – Twitter experience. And I can tell you, it is not nearly as poppin' as it was uh, even this summer. How is the vibe shift going? What's it like down in Dimes Square under the rule of Elon Musk? Honestly, it seems really unfortunate for them because like their whole strategy was, you know, doing like fascist occultist magic via tweets. But if Twitter isn't working very well, uh, that strategy doesn't work. And so, you know, I'm sure they're beginning to feel the heat because they've got all that Republican dark money that they're using to prop up their sub stacks. And that's just got to be really embarrassing if you can't get the engagement that you promised your uh, silent Republican donors, you know, when you said that you would create some kind of uh, NFT art exhibit or something, you know, you know what I mean? (laughs) Unfortunately, I do know what you mean. (laughs) I wish wish that I didn't. Yeah, me too. Um Ryan, when Elon Musk like pals around with the Andy Nyos of the world, and for for our listeners recently, the Avi Yemenis of the world, do you think he knows what he's doing there? That is a good question. I have seen people make the argument that he's been red-pilled. And it's become like a thing that makes me angrier and angrier the more I hear it. This idea that like he used to be normal, and then he like looked at the forbidden posts, and now he's you know, a right-wing maniac. I don't think that's true. I just think that he's a rich guy and he does things that amuse him and he doesn't really care about how they impact other people. And he's always been someone who's latched on to viral ephemera to promote himself. He was very into the whole like 
like Neil deGrasse Tyson Facebook shareable video content stuff, you know, 10 years ago. And now he's latched on to the right wing echo chamber. And I think he just knows that he can use it to promote himself. I also think that he's like a lame nerd. And so he's attracted to like lay epic pickle Rick style Reddit humor. And I think if you mix all that together into a really noxious brew, you get him talking to, you know, really influential far right influencers. And it's, it's, it's as cringe as it is dangerous. I would say. Just for any listeners who might not be, it's too online, which is good. Avi Yemeni tweeted at Elon Musk to ask him, uh, you know, he obviously has been looking into the US election, but has he thought about looking into any other elections? Uh, which I think for a lot of people, they wouldn't have realized that what Avi Yemeni, who's like a minor right-wing influencer down here, wanted him to say was, yes, we've been looking into the Victorian state election, which just happened here <laughs> in our city. Uh, and instead, Elon Musk was like, yeah, I've been hearing things about Brazil. Bit of a flop. Uh, yeah, I... Uh... I'm familiar with Avi. Uh, he, I feel like that's like a very good summation of his whole attempt at like injecting himself into the the global far right movement. <laughs> it, it never goes very well for him. And the Brazilian election, I think, makes like that makes sense to me that Elon Musk would be aware of that Jar Bolsonaro and the rest, which is an equally dangerous comment to make because Bolson, uh, the Bolsonarians, the the Bolsonaro supporters, they they're still trying to get an insurrection like event off the ground. They're not having great success with it, but yeah, for him to even address the Brazilian election, I thought was pretty, pretty irresponsible. Apart from Nazis, Ryan, what opportunities do you think the new Twitter provides for scammers and spammers? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my DMS are a mess and, and I'm a, I'm a pretty, uh, pretty big inbox zero evangelist. Like I don't like having unread messages anywhere. And so for years, I was like very good about ha- both having an open inbox because I, I, I like getting tips and I like, you know, getting, you know, talking to people for stories. And I at least clear most of my messages. But as of a month and a half ago, I was just, I woke up one morning and I was just deluged with crypto spam, you know, NFT group chats and all this and a lot of porn bots and not the fun kind of porn bots, you know. And I, I was like, I have to, I have to give up on this inbox. So I keep it open. And if I'm looking at Twitter at the exact moment I get a DM, I'll try to answer. But it's I, I'm, I'm underwater with spam. It's really bad. And, it, and it, was, it was crazy how fast it happened. The spam that I was seeing in my replies and my mentions seems to have kind of hit an equilibrium where there's some junk tweets in there, but it's not as bad as it was like a month ago uh, when Elon Musk first took over. But yeah, it, it's actually really sad because I, I really relied on Twitter as a a pretty cool and useful communication medium with, you know, strangers on the internet. And that is, that is essentially gone now. I don't know about spam and scams, but I've definitely been getting more business opportunities in the NFT space through my DMs. <laughs> oh yeah. I've got a, a few of those as well. I think, I think now is the time to buy into crypto. I think, you know, it can't go any lower. I don't think. So now's the time. What's happening with the world of NFTs, Ryan? I would say that it's either completely done the, the entire thing is completely over or all the development into blockchain technology is just going to sit around for a while until someone figures out how to do something completely different with it. I don't think NFTs, I don't think crypto in general technology works well for finance. I don't think it works well for culture. <laughs> I don't really even think it works well for basic internet services, but at the same time, you know, a blockchain is an internet protocol the same way uh, SM. 
FTP can run email or RSS can run updates on a website. It is a piece of technology that you can use for different things. Unfortunately, up until this point, we basically use it for gambling and destroying the economy. But I wonder if there'll be someone down the line who takes a fresh look at it and says, okay, we can do this with it or we can do that with it. But as of right now, I think the whole scene is pretty much dead for at least five to at least five years. What if we put right-wing sex magic on the blockchain? Do you think that might save it? They tried. I went to a Bitcoin convention in Miami uh, last May and Jordan B. Peterson was there and he, he didn't cry, but he got close. And they there was all kinds of like vaguely fashy magic talk. And a lot of the guys were obsessed with building what they called generational wealth. And they wanted to sort of store their finances in Bitcoin to use when their children live on Mars. But these are people from like South Florida who are making, you know, Bitcoin rigs in their bathroom. So it was a really jarring, it was really jarring. <laughs> I don't, I don't know where that's going to go, where all the energy goes. You're listening to Yenar Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Ryan Broderick about, well, mainly Elon Musk. I guess more broadly, Ryan, we've seen uh, figures like Yi uh, reemerge briefly on Twitter and then depart again after uh, some um, very high-quality tweets. Do you think that, uh, I guess, expressing admiration for Hitler is, remains a kind of, uh, you know, red line for US politics? Surprisingly, that is the second time someone has asked me that question this week. <laughs> oh, man, everything is so broken. Uh, yes, I think I think... Going on live TV and saying that you love Hitler or that Hitler had some good ideas is a bad idea and people shouldn't do it. The Kanye thing is complicated because I think I think it's pro- possibly the most complicated thing that's happening in American culture right now because I think any person can look at Kanye West and his behavior and say, like, this guy needs help. And obviously he has the responsibility – any person going through that kind of crisis, they have the responsibility to get that help. And obviously he's not surrounded by anyone who cares enough about him to do that. He And I think there is exploitation happening when it comes to figures like Miley Yiannopoulos – or Nick Fuentes, these far-right influencers who are using Kanye West as essentially an avatar to promote their their hateful worldviews. At the same time, Kanye West has a long history of mania and egotism and apparently praising Hitler um, and and sort of talking about these really taboo and, and racist and authoritarian subjects. He also has like a weird history with just like constantly watching pornography. And then he immediately pivots to no longer being a fan of pornography and then becoming like hardcore right wing, which is a pipeline. You guys are fans of pipelines. That That is a <laughs> pipeline that I, th- I think is very interesting. The sort of like shameless porn addict to right wing evangelical is just like, you can see it happen all the time. So that's like a very long winded way of saying that everything that Kanye West is saying he is responsible for. But I also think you, you have to sort of acknowledge that he is not well and those two things have to coexist to, to kind of understand the full context of, you know, when he gets on live TV on Alex Jones's live stream and talks about Hitler, like it's, I don't know, I don't like looking at it. It makes me uncomfortable to, to watch someone do that on, on that level in, in that much public scrutiny. I don't know. It's, it, 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 it freaks me out, to be honest. Uh, just another thing in relation to uh, Kanye and I guess Elon for different, slightly different reasons. But again, the question is raised, do these people know what they're doing? what exactly is going on and what gives them importance is their um, extraordinary wealth and power. And so I guess that's grounds for concern about the cultural and political influence that they might have. 
I think that's definitely true. I also think, you know, we saw this with Trump too, where there's all kinds of conversations about does he have dementia? Is he addicted to Adderall or something? Like, why is he acting this way? And I do think it's very fascinating that you can reach a certain level of both material wealth and algorithmic influence and, you know, sort of these things, these systems combine. And you, it creates this really terrifying machine where this person, you know, the term that everyone uses is like they're posting through it. But what they're really describing is this sort of digital mania that is beginning to manifest more often. Like Trump was an outlier. Trump was a really weird figure when he appeared on the scene. And there's now more Trumps than ever. And they're appearing faster. And I, I do wonder, I, I had this like really kind of like <laughs> this like Adam courtesy level thought a couple years, uh, a couple months ago during the, the GameStop pump where I was like, okay, so if you connect the levers of capitalism to the levers of viral attention, what, what does that mean? What does that do? And I think we're beginning to have a, a clearer picture of the answer, which is, you know, you have someone like Elon Musk, who is on paper, at least the richest man in the world. You have Kanye West, who up until recently was one of the richest artists and musicians in the world. And they have all this viral attention and all this sort of digital momentum. And they're just spiraling. They're just, they're acting completely berserk. Uh, on the largest stage imaginable. And I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's an accident that those things continue to to line up that way. It also strikes me that we're in something of a cultural moment where we're seeing all of these uh, properties created about, you know, the myth of uh, capitalist competence sort of falling apart. So like the WeWork, the multiple WeWork television shows, the all the Theranos stuff. What, what do you think it says that there's so much of this content being produced? America, America in particular, has always had a real sickness around attention. I, going back decades, there is this sort of obsession in America with attention and with the um, watching someone self-destruct in public. We, we really like it, and it, it's interesting that, like, even as uh, as recently as like 2008, when Britney Spears was having these like mental health episodes in public and sort of being laughed at and lampooned. And Americans just really enjoy that. It's a it's a really sick thing, and we've carried it over onto the internet. I think largely because the platforms we use are built by Americans. Uh, the incentives that power them were created by Americans, and sort of this American, this really sick American mentality has spread around the world. And what is I think the most interesting about where we are right now at the end of 2022 is that that kind of sickness used to be what happened to the users of these sites or the democracies that these sites are functioning in. But now they seem to be happening more regularly to the people who own them, which I think is really interesting. It's sort of like the, 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 the poison pill, like, uh, or like the, the one ring from the Lord of the Rings, like the people in the, in charge of Twitter are having Twitter brain sickness now, um, which I think maybe is a little deserved after putting us through the last 10 years of culture, but it is troubling. Now you could level a number of criticisms at uh, Mr. Musk, but one thing you can't say is that he is, doesn't have a commitment to transparency, which is extended to bringing in top journalists, Matt Taibbi and Perry Weiss. Uh, how have you found the Twitter files? I mean, okay, so I was a, con- I was a content moderator. I have, I have done content moderation work. I'm very familiar with how extremely boring it is. So watching these people try to gussy it up and make it look more interesting than it is, is I think very funny. I also am just impressed by how still how boring it is when they claim to have total access to Twitter and the entirety of Twitter. Like 
all you need to do is compare it to Jeff Horowitz from the Wall Street Journal's Facebook papers work, which I think is like some of the best reporting on the internet that's ever happened. And even the stuff that wasn't salacious and scandalous was fascinating because, you know, we're, we're, we're peeling back the, the curtain and, and like seeing the wizard finally and like understanding what these companies have done to us and the decisions that they've made over the last 10 to 15 years. But somehow these two knuckleheads have not really provided any interesting insights to Twitter, which is like the most <laughs> like Twitter. It's, it's the most, uh, controversial website that's maybe ever existed outside of 4chan and the stuff that they're coming up with is like well this is the filtering tool that they use to make sure that charlie kirk doesn't show up in the trending topics it's like what do you you have the ability to go show us the emails from the justine sacco incident yeah like like there's there's like i don't know I, i i'm just really frustrated because as someone who who writes about the internet all day every day and has for many years i would just be dying to know like what the what the company was talking about during some of the the most important, I mean, the Arab Spring, o- Wall, Occupy Wall Street, like the, the, the list goes on and on. Black Lives Matter in 2014, like they have access to all of those communications. And what we're getting is just like garbage. I don't know. Yeah, I, I kind of would feel that you, you we talked about the Facebook files last year, Ryan, and you know some some of the stories that came out, like the, the things that they knew and that they let happen. And this is, uh, yeah. Well, what, one, of, one of the things we've discovered is in their reporting on, you know, how right-wing accounts were punished on the platform, we've discovered people like libs of TikTok were protected species on the platform. They had, they had a thing saying, don't, you know, don't ban this person without checking. Right. Uh, which seems to be very similar to a policy that Facebook had, which was called cross-check or X-check, which uh, surfaced during the Facebook papers. And, you know, we, we kind of knew this, right? Like we kind of knew that if you cause enough trouble at a high enough profile on a social network, the company is going to be aware of you. Like it just, that is just what happens. And if you can get enough politicians concerned about your presence on a website, the company is not going to do anything because the company doesn't want to get hauled in front of Congress. And Facebook learned this years ago. Twitter obviously knows this too. And so like, it's not surprising to me that Twitter has a don't accidentally ban libs of TikTok rule. Cause I think most most websites have that kind of thing, right? Like, because imagine if like you're just on the trust and safety team one day and you're like, oh, yeah, they've done something. Let's get rid of them. Like, it would be a huge headache. So I, I sort of understand why Libs of TikTok was exempt from some things or at least flagged up and earmarked, right? I think what's disingenuous about this whole thing is pretending like that's scandalous or interesting. It, it's annoying, obviously. Like, I, I don't think that account should be on the site. I think it's a really dangerous account and I, I have family members who work in hospitals in Boston. So, you know, six months ago when Lids of TikTok was driving abuse and harassment and causing genuine bomb threats to those hospitals, like, you know, I was personally, I, I knew people who were personally affected by that. So, you know, I don't want to give it to any, them any credit, but at the same time, like none of this is, is interesting. It's just like, it's the most boring <laughs> community moderation is really boring. And, and I, I don't know. I, I do know. I, I think Elon Musk is making this seem really scandalous and crazy because he knows that without drama, people are going to leave Twitter he, and he can't, he can't afford to lose anyone because he's trying to monetize them with a subscription service that was supposed to launch today. And I haven't heard anything about it yet. Ryan, do you think that libs of TikTok have been successful in displacing critical race theory as being the kind of uh, key pole around which the American far right is organizing? I think that's true. Uh, so the critical race theory thing was really funny because like it was a moment where the, the like the, the egghead right wing, you know, the the think tank guys tried to get in on the the action. Uh, 
And in a, in a weird way, I'm slightly relieved that libs of TikTok has taken over because the think tank guys are scary in how, in how, in how like well-organized they were. And they were like, cause, and they were very upfront. Like I think it was Christopher Rufo was the main architect of critical race theory stuff. And he said like, we're going to get just genuine right-wing maniacs on every school board in the country and take over the country that way. And and they were doing it. <laughs> they were, it was like, like I find right-wing think tanks absolutely horrifying. Libs of TikTok is kind of a more classic mode for those people. Like most of the modern right wing around the world at this point, I would say is just people weaponizing tabloid stories, you know, finding that one story in a Murdoch paper and being like, see, that's why immigrants are dangerous. And like, it goes viral and libs of TikTok, you know, I don't want to say clever, but let's say deviously figured out that you can do that same trick with random TikTok content. And so you can find, you know, uh, an LGBT person on TikTok share their video and be like, see, this is why they're all degenerates. And it fits, I, I think, the ecosystem of Twitter better because Twitter is a site that's constantly making random content go viral. And it, I, I've seen I've seen very well thought out arguments saying that it's a form of terrorism. I, I, I sort of think of it more in line with doxing or sort of online targeted harassment, but they, they go hand in hand. At this point, if you got rid of libs of TikTok, a new account doing that exact same trick would pop up almost immediately, I'm pretty sure. Ryan, you mentioned Crosscheck. Uh, there was a bit of controversy with Crosscheck earlier this year when uh, an Indian publication, The Wire, uh, published what seemed to be some false reports about it. I was wondering where you landed on uh, what that was all about. Yeah, it was a really interesting story. My, so I've done a little bit of reporting in India, and I know reporters there. And The Wire was like a very well-respected publication. And when it first all started kicking off and uh, Facebook, you know, Meta's spokesperson, Andy Stone, was saying this isn't true and, they, and all the back and forth was happening, my, my thought was, okay, this is probably some kind of elaborate right-wing Hindu nationalist prank or troll on the wire. India in particular is a, a really tough place for libel laws. Uh, I, uh, I believe they're criminal there. And so I was like, okay, this must be some kind of setup. It seemed like the story in the end was actually more complicated where it was a, a source who never worked at Meta or didn't work at Meta in the capacity they said they were. And they were sort of making up all this stuff to backfill the claims that they were making. And it seemed like the reporter who was involved wasn't very experienced or asking the right questions. And and, and this, the ending was really sad because the police did show up to the offices of The Wire. And I don't know, you know, the, the latest on that story, but it, I, I think... If, if you can find anything useful in it, it's just the companies like Meta, companies like Twitter, they, they're they not talking to reporters in the global south the same way they are in countries like Australia, the UK, the US. Although in Australia and the UK, there, there's even less access than there is in the US. And, and I, I wonder if that story would have played out the same way if Facebook was as active with with the media in India as they are in the US. Uh, but I don't know. With Meta, was it, Andy, was it this year they did the news thing or was that last year? <laughs> that was last no. year, surely. Yeah, I surely. Think it was last year. God, I hope it was last year. <laughs> Ryan, recently Meta has sort of announced that they're going to shift away from the news game. Uh, we saw in Australia when yeah. there was a... <laughs> the suggestion that they might have to pay news publishers. They they shut us off from the news, which was interesting. A Andy, you got banned from that, didn't you? 
I did, Cam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the news, maybe. Do Do you think that uh, this is something that they're going to try again at scale? Because it didn't go very well for them here. And think about their shift away from the news and towards uh, Las Vegas magicians doing horrible food. Yeah. So wait, do you, does Australia have news on Facebook again now, or do you still yeah, not have but, it? No, they brought it back. Okay. What was it like when you didn't have it? Did you go on the site? Like, what did it look like? What? How did it feel? Uh, it was well, it was sort of weird because they, they they blocked all of the news sites, but they also blocked like uh, emergency services sites. Uh, I think <laughs> it must have been d- during the bushfires. Uh, so they, they they blocked heaps of uh, really necessary <laughs> information sources, uh, which led to a bit of a PR nightmare for them. But yeah, I, I, it, Facebook is just generally bad, so I, I don't know if it's made a huge difference. Yeah, I uh, I think if they tried it here. It would not go well because I actually think Americans really do like reading the news, even if they hate the news and they hate the concept of the news. But I think Americans are actually quite interested in the in the current events of their country. And I think they probably care more about it than they do spending time on Facebook. In fact, most of the stuff my parents who are still on Facebook, most of the stuff they're doing is, if not reading news stories, watching videos that recap news stories. So I, I don't think it would go very well if they actually tried to do it. And I should say the bill that Facebook, that, that Meta is responding to, uh, I think it's the, J, the JCPA, is terrible. And it's effectively a link tax that would only help the largest media monopolies in America. And it, <laughs> watching Facebook fight with this bill is a lot like watching just like a bunch of Godzilla monsters destroy your city where it's like, you know, let them fight, but also whoever wins, we all lose. I hope that the bill gets changed or killed. I don't think it, I don't I don't know if it will or not. But if Facebook does try to get rid of news, I think the engagement on the site will go down quite a bit. I also think that we'll just see a ton of right wing blogs appear, just these like horrible like patriotmom.eagle popping up and and just doing news stories, but in a format that doesn't look like news, and having that spread just really fast. I, mean, I think that legislation's sort of essentially what we got in Australia. It's a, but there were enough sort of smaller publishers that were incorporated into it, into the deals that are it wasn't as bad. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Our version specifically lifts antitrust scrutiny to media companies to collectively negotiate different ad revenue deals. So essentially, what it's doing, if I if I read it correctly is that it's saying <laughs> the largest media companies in America can work together to fix ad rates to fight two other large monopolies, which just seems so <laughs> just break them up, just break it all up. Like, I don't understand why we're like America is so afraid of antitrust regulation. We have a, we have a long proud history of trust busting. And I don't know why we're doing this roundabout thing of like, let's create more monopolies to fight the other monopolies. Like what's it? It's, it's silliness. Just break it all up. Was that kind of sentiment in evidence at the uh, midterm elections, Ryan? Uh, what, what antitrust stuff during the midterms? Yeah, insofar as there was an expectation that um, on the part of some, uh, in the media at least, that there'd be some kind of red wave, which didn't quite eventuate. And um, I guess I wonder to what extent do you think the Democrats are able to or willing to capital, capitalise upon this kind of resentment towards these corporate monopolies. 
So I will say, like uh, the 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 Elizabeth Warren ring or um, the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party, you know, they have all kinds of criticisms leveled against them, many of which are are correct and, and accurate. But I think her whole understanding of big tech as these like out of control monopolies is really smart. And I think the stuff that she's come up with is interesting. And like so far, some of the most articulate ways I've seen of thinking about how to deal with these sprawling online marketplaces. All that said, I don't actually see any of that really trickling into the, the, the sort of big democratic explosion during the midterms. That to me seemed largely to do with the kind of retail level unionization we're seeing, the sort of like millennial driven union work happening at Amazon, at Starbucks, uh, attacking those large corporations from that side. And then I think also Roe v. Wade was just a step too far for, for a lot of Americans. I think I, I, I think the, the American right wing really shot themselves in the foot by trying that. And, and then I also just think that we're now far enough removed from AOC's big social media campaign that a lot of other Democrats are figuring out how to, how to make that work for them. John Fetterman, the, the senator-elect for Pennsylvania, the big, large man. I, I, I was very fired up about his campaign. I, I thought it was like perfectly done. And, and I also think the Democrats have become a lot less squeamish about just pointing out how fucking weird like the Republican Party is now. I mean, they're all weirdos. And, like they, they look weird. They sound weird. They, 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 they talk like aliens or, or, or Marvel movie villains. Like, and, and I think there was this, uh, this real desire to pretend like everything was normal four years ago. And I, I didn't see that happening this year. And I think they, I think they did very well because they were so clear eyed about how insane a lot of these people are. Uh, didn't Hillary Clinton, you know, famously term the Republicans uh, or a segment of the Republicans deplorables. Uh, in 2016, what's changed in the, the years since? Well, one, uh, Hillary Clinton has so far stayed out of it, which is great. <laughs> I think she should just Pokemon go away. That's <laughs> that's what she should do. Um, I also think that the, the attitude... You're looking forward to Chelsea. Oh, God. Oh, God. Don't put that out there in the world, man. Uh, I, I think I think that the, the sneering and the, the elitist feeling was a large part of why that didn't work. You know, the, the sort of sticking their nose up and not, and so I think there's a difference between not taking Republican voters seriously and not taking Republican candidates seriously. And I think that's the really key distinction. Like at no point did, I follow John Federman's campaign really closely and I feel like he's a really good model for this where at no point did I feel like he was laughing at Republican voters in Pennsylvania. He spent most of his energy pointing out exactly how absurd Dr. Oz is. And I think coming off the, the sort of arrogance of the, of the two Obama terms, the Democrats were like, we've got this. Donald Trump is a maniac and all these people are crazy. And that wasn't the case. And, me, and while they're doing that, Trump is literally going around the country to every town in every swing state he can think of where no one ever visits and being like, look at me, I'm a rich man and I'll help you become rich too. Vote for me. And I think this time around in the midterms, the Democrats were much smarter about really like taking the concerns of their local constituencies seriously, while also being extremely upfront with how bizarre and weird the Republican candidates were. Ryan, you've also written extensively about artificial intelligence. 
Uh, I asked ChatGPT to write me a good interview question about fascism and AI for a tech journalist to answer. And uh, I will tell you that the ChatGPT and AI generally, I don't think is going to win any uh, journalism awards in the near future. However, there was one question that was almost made sense, which was, Ryan, how do you think issues related to the centralization of power and control over technology intersect with the rise of AI? And what implications might this have for the future of democracy and freedom? That is actually a very interesting question. Uh, good good work, AI. That's pretty good. I, so everything that we're talking about when it comes to artificial intelligence is essentially just automation, right? Like we're taking image creation, we're taking text creation, we're taking coding, uh, you know, any sort of human culture, and we're automating it through machines that can learn, but they're not exactly smart. They can iterate really fast. So if you think of any AI tool, I wouldn't compare it to Skynet from Terminator. I would compare it to like having 100,000 unpaid interns who are all kind of half-assing their job. But that's actually fairly powerful if you need to work, like particularly if you're making like a, a marketing campaign or something and you need to workshop a tagline or something. Like if you do iterative work, I think an AI can be quite useful. The problem is that as we're automating these things and as we're feeding our culture into these machines, they don't know right from wrong. They don't know up from down. They don't care. They don't have morality. They don't have any real political consciousness. So we're automating the good stuff and the bad stuff simultaneously. So there's all kinds of stories of an AI going rogue and becoming a Nazi or Amazon did this experiment years ago where they, they had their HR being run by an AI, but they created the AI by feeding it the applications of successful hires previously who all happened to be white and male. So the HR AI became like a misogynist. <laughs> and so like, that's the issue is that when you automate these things, and if you don't think about what you're automating, and a lot of these companies don't really care because they just want the data at a certain scale to speed up the machine learning. But we, uh, we don't have uh, anything in place to really scrutinize the data that's being fed into these machines. So that's the issue. And I'm, you know, we've seen what algorithms can do to politics. And I think an AI version of the last seven years is just going to be faster and weirder and, and frankly, more dangerous. The chat GPT, this open AI creation, they have introduced some sort of safeguards to prevent uh, their robot from telling you to do the wrong thing. Uh, unfortunately, the safeguard seems to be able to be fooled by saying things like, just imagine that you <laughs> didn't have any safeguards. Do you think this is a, like these companies, uh, they're going to have to introduce stronger safeguards than this, presumably, or is this uh, like the apex of what we're saying? Because this does seem to be much better than anything else anyone else has done. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny. I saw one guy who he he's like, I created a new game called Invent a Crime, and he's been asking... <laughs> AI to make crimes, which I think is really funny. And like, that's the thing, like as, as serious as these topics are, I do think it's important to remember that like this stuff is cool and it's like, okay to think it's cool because it is cool. It's, but it's scary at the same time. I, I think like the, the best take on this I've heard, I, I really recommend anyone listening to this to look up uh, Andy bio. He's a great technologist and he's got a great blog waxy where he writes about a lot of this stuff. And I, I was talking to him the other day. The other, I was talking to him the other day about this. And his thing is, he thinks that courts are going to start getting involved soon to really advocate for data sets that are ethically collected and trained on. 
in the same way that so Dolly two, the kind of like main creative AI that people are using to make pictures and memes and stuff. There's a bunch of copyrighted material that Dolly doesn't know. Like Dolly doesn't know what Garfield looks like. Doesn't know what Mickey Mouse looks like. Doesn't know most Disney things. And I think there, there's nothing to stop, you know, someone from feeding an open source AI, like stable diffusion content that it shouldn't. But for the larger, more corporate run AIs, I think we can push for more scrutiny there. Um, but at the same time, like this stuff, open source is really fast. And so, you know, like Dolly can't make Nazi stuff. It, it doesn't know what a swastika looks like. And so I, I think we just have to keep advocating for that because once they do learn this stuff, it's impossible. It's like almost impossible to get it out of the, out of the, out of the data set. You know, I, I did notice the mid journey seems to think that uh, Ted Cruz is a Zodiac killer. If you ask it to give you the Zodiac killer, it just looks exactly like Ted Cruz. <laughs> Oh really? That's super funny. Yeah, I mean, like the AIs, the AIs are kind of fun. I spent I spent the uh, the other day using an AI to try to get it give me like a Sonic the Hedgehog picture. And I, every once in a while, I'll have like a. I, I also feel like I'm not good at using AI in a weird way. Like the stuff that I'm getting out of an AI just isn't cool, and I don't know why. So I do think there's like a, a way of thinking about an AI that is. I almost I always compare it to to SEO like search engine optimization like I'm not good at getting stuff to the top of Google but certain people are and like you know is that a cool skill I wouldn't say so but like it is something uh, and I, I feel like we're going to start seeing that more with with AI prompts I guess Ryan I'm just wondering in terms of 2023 uh, what do you expect in terms of garbage production ah uh, well. <sighs> Okay, my, my, my crazy galaxy brand conspiracy theory is that we're kind of treading water, I think. I think the last three years of technological advancement have just all been like people wasting time kind of because the theory that I've heard is that – so Apple has said that they're coming out with some kind of VR headset, some kind of wearable, some kind of like mixed reality wearable. And part of me wonders if just like everyone in Silicon Valley is just wait, treading water and wasting time because – they don't know if this thing that Apple may or may not be releasing is just going to change everything. At the same time, I think a lot of Silicon Valley was very distracted by crypto and they completely missed the boat on AI. And I think we're going to see like a, a, a huge AI gold rush next year. But yeah, I, I sort of, it, it feels very much like everyone wants something new out of the world of tech, but they don't know what it is yet. And we're all just sort of waiting around for it. Like we've all decided like there's going to be a revolution, but we don't know what it is yet. And I don't know if it'll happen next year, but I think we might get a clearer picture of what's coming next year. Well, something to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If people if people want to find you online, Ryan, you're at Broderick on Twitter while it still stands. Uh, GarbageDay.email is your highly recommended newsletter, Garbage Day. And you also have a podcast, The Content Minds. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Well, Andy, this is our final show for the year. We will be back in 2023, but until then, stay safe and take care. Yeah, take care, guys. See you next year. One, two, three, four. Put this down. Then it's just too weird.
gift-giving meaningful this year with a festive gift from Children's Ground. A First Nations-led organisation, Children's Ground creates holistic, long-term change with First Nations children, their family and community. Choose from gifts designed by Children's Ground artists or our change-making digital gift cards. You'll receive a digital card to email or to print at home. It's the gift that's guaranteed to arrive on time. Go to childrensground.org.au to shop or learn more. Children's Ground is a 3CR supporter. One hundred meters, seventy five meters, fifty meters, twenty five meters, fifteen meters, ten meters, five meters. Grass fires move faster than you think. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter.